0: August 17th, 2022, we're in Masikhat Sanhedrin, and Dafkof Kof Amud Alif. If you count from the bottom of the page up, it's just three lines up, basically in the middle of the line, maybe a little bit to the left. If you recall, the context was that Rabi'i Ali Azer was halas, the either the end of the life of Rabi'i Ali Ezer or just a time of ailment and illness of uh, Rabi'i Ali Ezer, And many or several of his students had come to uh, speak with him to be. Uh, Uh, to console him and each one of them has been taking time to give a short prayer in the merit of the greatness of Rabi Li'Azer so each one of them has talked about his greatness he's greater than a droplet of rain, because a droplet of rain might bring growth in this world, but he brings us growth in this and the world to come. And the next one talked about the sun. The sun might give growth and might aid vegetational growth in this world, but in the world to come, we have no such concept. As a matter of fact, the pasuk describes how in the world to come, it will be the light of God. Within which we'll bask as a result, as a in, in place of the light of the sun, and then Rabbi Akiva, after several other mentions, Rabbi Akiva, out of place as he generally is in these sorts of stories. Spoke up, says the Gemara, Na Akiva Amar. Instead of this merciful, uh, soulful request of God and praise of Rabbi Rabbi Akiva's words are, Chavivin yisurin, just two words. How beloved is pain, is torture. Oh, come on Rabbi Akiva, wrong time for that. Rabbi is ostensibly in pain. He's lying in bed and not in a very good place. As a matter of fact, his own statement, Rabbi Eliezer was a few lines earlier in the Gemara, that this is a time of that hema, that anger of Akadosh Baruch Hu. he's feeling it, he's feeling the wrath. That's your statement, Rabbi Akiva. In what way is that appropriate? What are we to derive from that? Says the Gemara, Amar lahem. Rabbi Eliezer turns to these other students who are present and requests, Support me, in other words, raise me up a bit. I'd like to hear the words and understand them of my student Akiva She'amar Havivin Yusurin. I want to understand that statement. I want to understand his, his meaning in this context that he's talking about the beloved nature of torture, of pain. So, Rabbi uh, ever the pedagogue, ever the rabbi and teacher of students says, I want sourcing, I don't want just philosophy, I'd like you to prove your comment. And by proving it, by pointing to something in Torah where you'd be able to bring forth, to adduce a certain proof for Havivin Yisurin, maybe I'll understand the concept better, it says, "Akiva zo, Akiva zo minayin Where do you derive that from? Amar says it Akiva mikra anidoresh. I'm just reading and interpreting the simple meaning of pesukim and their context. Ben Shetim esre shana menaseh b'molchov v'hameshim v'hamer shana malach bi'irushalayim. Pesukim describe the kingship of. This not great, this pretty terrible and rotten king that we had, his name was Menashe. Menashe's father, as Sefer Melachim describes to us, was wa Melech. We talked about each of them at several points in different contexts in our and this Perakim and other Perakim, but here's the Pisukim that describe the whole storyline. Menashe was 12 years old when he's appointed king. He's king for 55 years. What sort of kingship was it? He did evil, bad, in the eyes of God. That's our menashe. Now keep in mind, his father, Hizkiah, was quite righteous, was perhaps, maybe not even perhaps, was the greatest king we ever had as a nation. Uchtiv, on the other hand, the Gemara says, with regards to the father of Menashe, again Hiskiyah the Pasuk says, Gam uh, ele the Pasuk describes how the book of Mishleh was transcribed, was put together. Of course it's the wisdom of Shilomo but it's put together by Chizkiah and his people. Rashi cites from the Gemara Masech Bava Batran Daftet that records that Sefer Mishle was composed, again, not in its nature, not in its essence, but composed in its physical reproduction by Chizkiah v'si'ato, by and his people. That's a significant thing to have Sefer Mishle, which is words of ethics, of morality, of an approach to life, of a proper pathway uh, that's the father of Minasheh who was Oser Hashem. Rashi goes further, he cites the Gimaran of Fsadidale just 6 7 Dapim ago, which describes how Haiskiyah took a sword, took a knife, and st- placed it down in front of the study hall, the Beit Midrash, if you recall this Midrash. And he says, anyone who's not immersed in serious study yiddaker will be, uh, will be uh, speared, will be uh, stabbed with this uh, sword, with this knife. The Gemara described in several contexts, and the Pesukim described how he brought Am Israel very close to God. If you recall again, the Gemara had him as being the potential Mashiach. He had one wrongdoing, he had one deficiency in the eyes of the rabbis. He wasn't thankful. He didn't have enough gratitude to God. Whereas David had less goodness in his life and was more gracious. But that was the statement. So understand for a moment, says the Gemara, says Rabbi Akiva to his teacher, Rabbi Eliezer, here's Chizkiah, all that goodness, all the positivity as a leader, you'd imagine as a father as well, and his son wasn't only off the path, he was completely off. He was Osehara, he was one of, if not the worst king we ever had, said Rabbi Akiva to Rabbi Eliezer in this context, is it possible? that, and of course it's an incredulous, it's a rhetorical question, it says, is it possible Hezkiah is out there teaching everyone but not his own son? Ela rather said to Bi'akivan, in response, listen, that's only to, uh, to, to, uh, to highlight, to accentuate the point that Menashe was callous. Menashe would not accept anything. Hezkiah was teaching all and his son, but Menashe was not receiving. So what did crack Menashe? Did Menashe at some point repent? Did he open up at a particular moment and juncture in his life? Because it wasn't from his father and that already portrays for us the personality, the character trait of a Menashe who's rebellious, who's strong-minded, who's going to be fierce in his way of repelling any God involvement. Says the Gemara, or said Rabbi Akiva, and for all the toil and effort that we can assume put into his son Menashe, the only thing that brought Menashe to Mutav, to goodness, to a relationship with God, to turning toward God as, a way, as opposed to away from him, was Yisurin. Where do we find that? We find it later in the life of Menashe, El Menashe Hikshivu. And so God speaks to Menashe, and of course his nation, and they don't listen. They're not heeding his words. God has Ashur, Syria, enter in and take over. And they chain up and are able to, as a prisoner, take away Menashe. And the Pasu continues or later on describes to us in Divrei uh, Hayamim shortly thereafter the immediate Pesukim afterwards it says Uchehaser <laughs> et penei Adonai me'od milifnei elohai Avotav the pasuk describes that in those narrow straits of existence in the moments where Menashe was finally in pain where he was tortured as a prisoner he finally turns to God and as a result elav he prays to God So the Pasuk describes how finally Menashe turns to God. I mean, again, this is not uh, rocket science to you and me, that when a person is, through their life, defiant, rebellious, but ultimately speaking at some juncture, has pain, has torture, realizes that they're out of control, of their ultimate destiny, that's when they turn and feel the vulnerability. But you have it empirically, you have it in the story of Minashe. Says in Rabbi Akiva, in concluding his statement to Rabbi Eli Aizah, perhaps we learn from this, period. We learn from this that to a certain extent we can look at the positive side of yisurin, of pain and of torture. So two brief points to be made. Number one, this is Rabbi Akiva LeShitato. We've read about Rabbi Akiva. We mentioned him on the first page as being the one with the breadth of understanding and perspective. That's him again. Instead of seeing something narrowly, instead of envisioning this circumstance of Rabbi Li ezer, maybe writhing in pain in bed and saying, oh, how terrible and let's just get you out of it, he sees a certain positivity. That is the Rabbi Akiva we know in love from Tal he very seriously and genuinely states that everything in his mind and in his understanding that God does in this world, it's for the goodness of this world and for the individual. Difficult for you, impossible for you and me to see. But that's his statement. It's whose final word in this world, Rabbi, is Ehad. It's the Shema Yisrael Adonai know, Adonai Yehad. He sees and feels a certain oneness. He's able to see the whole picture. So that's his statement more than anything to Rabili Izzer. Rabili instead of praying and beseeching God as my uh, colleagues have done to get you out of this, let's see that there is something potentially positive in this. Second point, just briefly to be made, there was and still is in certain, maybe lesser extent over the course of Jewish history, strands of thought wherein the understanding was that yisurin, pain, was something that was inherently positive. Which means to say, just by being lashed and tortured and and fasting so that I feel the pain of existence, today we would associate that most with Christianity. Over the course of time there were Jewish thinkers who set forth such ideas as well that there's something inherently positive about that. That if you want a catharsis of sorts, if you want to cleanse yourself, torture yourself. Allow for yourself to be tortured. Harambam for one and you know his student of sorts, Rabbeinu Menachem HaMe'iri, in filling out his understanding of this matter, was very opposed to such an approach. The approach instead, very much portrayed by the Akiva over here, if you read it carefully, was not. But the Eliezer, just look at these pains and just bask in them and enjoy them. Realize this is cleansing your soul. It's not what he says. He says, look at what happened to Menashe. It's not that Menashe achieved kapara, atonement, uh, forgiveness from the pain. It's that through the pain, he shifted his perspective and turned to God. It's that the pain, it's that the opportunity for kapara is realized through the difficult times, it means that in turn, when Haram Bam talks in Perek Alpha, Filchotte at the very end, in Halakha Dalit, the Arba'at Hiduke Kapara, these are famous ways of achieving atonement, about Kippur being a part of them. You see, people have this wrongful perspective of Yom Kippur as well. We'll say the Torah says, You should afflict yourselves, you see? Affliction, torture, it's what it's about. That's what gives you Kapara. Not the proper understanding. As we've discussed, and we will, again, many occasions, the word in the Torah in many places, notably at the beginning of this week's parasha, is not a reference to torture and pain in the respect that I have some sort of flagellation, someone's beating me up, It's rather that I'm able to gain perspective of who I am. It's a grounding circumstance. It's something that I stripped away all the excesses on Yom Kippur. I'm no longer eating or drinking or involved in my bodily needs and and exciting, uh, pleasurable, uh, hedonistic drives. I'm able to focus appropriately. That's the concept in this midrash as well. The midrash is that Rebbei Ezra turns to excuse me Rebbei Akiva turns to Ezra and says, number one, perspective Yisurin can be positive. Number two, for our purposes, don't imagine that it's that Yisurin gives some sort of magical potion that you're now ach- you now achieve, achieved atonement. It's not the way it works. Instead, what it is is through moments of despair, through those narrow straits of life, we have the opportunity to turn to God. Yes, Charlie. Understood. So Charlie just points out that there's a difference between Menashe. Menashe is being punished in this moment. Rabbi Eliezer is Rabbi Akiva suggesting that he's being punished. Well, one of two things. First of all, yesterday Rabbi Akiva did quote to uh, Rabbi uh, Eliezer that the pasuk says in Kohelet, sadik uh, There's no such thing as a righteous person who has no sin. So that's first and foremost. He might be suggesting that's punishment. Secondly, that's right. So it's not a direct analogy, but it's an understanding. It's a perspective of through those. I mean, I'm not going to tell you every time someone gets sick in this world it's a direct punishment either. I am going to tell you it is not easy to say in the moment, not easy to even portray afterwards. It's an opportunity to feel vulnerable and connect yourself to God. So that's more than anything what he's doing. He's saying, you see what happened with Menasheh? It really as You have the opportunity to do that right now as well. Instead of seeing this as, oh my goodness, how could this befall me? Let's see a way to constructively deal with this. Yes, Rabbi? Say sometimes if somebody that's close to you is getting history, maybe it's maybe it's really you, what you're saying. I can tell you as far well. so Rabbi asks uh, when someone who's close to you is pained and is being t- tortured, maybe it's a way of affecting you. I can I can accept mean, that I can accept that we should think that way with regards to ourselves. I can't accept that, that if it's a positive. heavenly. That's it, that positive, right? But what I, but what I can tell you, Rabbi, is it's it's in, at least for me, it's unfathomable that God, and, and we have several midrashim Hazal who say it explicitly, that God would torture another just in order to bring you on. back. I can tell you that you can, it's the way Haram Bam describes existence when things are difficult, at the beginning of the Chot we're supposed to internalize it which is quite the opposite of what's done in our contemporary society. When bad things happen to the nation, everyone points, it must have been because of them or him or her, right? Instead, that division is supposed to be, oh, it must be for me. But I'm telling you, ultimately speaking in your heart of hearts, you're not supposed to say, and I think it's it might be forbidden to say, it's happening only for me. That's why this guy is, is tortured. No, 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 it's happening, and how can I derive and learn from this with regards to my life? That's certainly the way I understand it throughout. It says the Gemara, Tanura banana Beraita, a little bit of a peculiar beraitah, which describes three not too great individuals over the course of our history who in the eyes of the rabbis could have and perhaps did have claims to God which went unanswered uh, in, and effectively what the rabbis are saying is in some sort of respect, God got caught in a bind and that's why he gave them a forgiveness. That's a strange statement. Shilosha ba'u alila, Alilah, Rashi explains it's a claim that's difficult to respond to. It's not an argument. It's not a dialogue, it's a claim. It's a catch-22. I caught you in a bind. Uh, what are those? Eluhen, Cain, Esav, You couldn't find a, a lower three on uh, the totem pole of our uh, biblical existence than Cain, after Cain kills Abel, and God tells him you're going to be a wanderer Cain turns to God and says ah, my sin and the punishment in turn is too difficult for me to carry this burden will be overwhelming. Amar Fanav, the rabbi is reconstructing that moment because God does answer with a certain compassion. God does say to him, okay, I'll give you a certain protection. I won't leave you out for the wolves. So why does God respond that way? Isn't Cain deserving of a certain retribution, a certain punishment? Says the Gemarat, so to speak, the claim was as follows. Again, it's anachronistic. Cain doesn't have this Ruach HaKodesh we'd imagine about what's going to take place in the future. It's rather circumstantial. As we read this theologically, philosophically. Philosophically, goes like this. shel says to God, master of the universe. Kilum As my sin, as my wrongdoing, worse than the 60, ten thousands That's 600,000. I got the numbers right this time, Jeffrey. 600, this one's the classic one. 600,000, it's a reference to Am Yisrael. At Chita Egel is my sin in this moment as an individual who wrongfully killed. I'll add, if Hashim don't, uh, we don't know that Cain was aware of the wrongdoing in murder. We might say that that's a natural law, but regardless, it's the first one that's described in the Torah Is my wrongdoing as an individual, not in the face of you, God, not as a national calamity and rebellious act. Is it worse than the 600,000 who are going to worship the golden calf? And they, you will forgive. Shouldn't you be forgiving me as well? That's the claim in the Gemara. Are there any textual uh, significance with regards to Cain and Haita Egel? Not that I know of. It's more than anything a general claim that the Chachamim are envisioning with regards to God's mercy and compassion upon humanity. <speaking in Hebrew> the Pasuk says that Esav turns to his father and says, after he finds out that Yaakov has seized and gotten the Biracha from Yitzhak, he says, Is it only one Biracha? Uh, now the Gemara doesn't elaborate on that claim. Rashi explains, and elaborating on Rashi, that it's a claim not only to the father Yitzhak, it's really a claim against God. In other words, is there only one source of blessing with regards to giving a ble- giving some sort of uh, promise for the future to your children? Can it really be that God doesn't have the control and the power, the breadth of of, of ability to give to Yaakov and to Isab? So that claim... So so to speak, in the moment and is a winning claim. He, get he gets a barakah one barakah one right one. afterwards from Yitzchak. Initially, he says, "Brother came right. and, and in, took in, it, in, in it, the yeah. and took it from you." He cries yeah. out and he says, yeah. and then Yitzchak gives him a blessing. You know, and so forth. So lastly, he says, "The Gemara Elohot." harbe ul basof karal avotav archive says this is a dirashafan the pasuk the pasuk that we read just a few moments ago with regards to um, menashe said that he finally uh, pasuk basukhas ubhaser lohilat <laughs> pene adonai elohav vaykana meod min pene elohei avotav It's an interesting, almost unnecessary reference. It should just say, and he prayed to God. Instead, it says he prayed to the God of his fathers. The understanding is, beforehand, he was praying to other lowercase gods. So the reference then is that, as Rashi fills out, that Menashe was able to turn to God and say, listen, I tried all those, A, B, C, D, all the way till Z, other gods. Now I'm trying you. You don't work. They don't work. You're no different than them. It's, so to speak, caught in this catch-22 situation. I don't necessarily want to forget Give you, but I have to show my greatness, my actual control in this moment. The Gemara has each of these circumstances as it's a hard to articulate um, statement because there's no such thing as envisioning God as being forced His hand in any of these circumstances. It's according to our feeble understanding of the situations that God, as we have Moshe turning to God in the Torah, and so forth, God could and should say, I'd run this, I'm not nervous about that, it's not an issue. Okay, but for our understanding, that's the type of things that takes place with regards to existence and governing of the world. says the Gemara, The Otiyotav, if you recall, in our first Mishnah of the Perek, which is what we're dealing with throughout, we talked about the ones who don't have a halak la'olam haba. So Abba Shaul's statement was, even a person who utters the name of God, Rashi explained to us that 42-letter name of God, which was was, uh, kept specifically for mention in the Mikdash, um, and, and it was used in the mikdash, although it was covered up in the mikdash. So it would make noise as it was said, so that people wouldn't just overhear it in a regular fashion. We talked about the significance of names and a certain clandestine uh, approach to life, even with regards to God. We, t- we talked about at that at that juncture the inappropriateness of uh, advancing ourselves into the domain of God by using a name of His. Heke, just, and so that's the, it's just a, a very inappropriate, a baseful fashion, a fashion of, of approaching God. The Gemara qualifies that statement and says two things. Givulin means outside of the Mikdash. In other words, Abba statement that this terrible consequence of using the name of God in its regular fashion with those 42 letters, just speaking it out, it's if it's done by Givulin, outside of the Mikdash, because again, in the Mikdash it was done with Shema Meforash. We know that from Kippur, when we lie down on the floor, when they would hear the Shema Mefurash, that's what you did in the Mikdash, because you were using that special name of God. And Uba'uga, Ubalashon Aga, is one of two interpretations in Rashi. Either Aga means in the vernacular, meaning not in Hebrew. The issue is specifically when you use a different language to utter the name of God as opposed to in Hebrew not fully clear to me how you mention I don't know exactly Rashi's I, I really don't I don't understand I guess but phonetically that's Hebrew not fully clear exactly what that means um, I, I really not alternatively uh, R- Rashi explains it's milashon uga which means in a gathering when people are just gathered to talk about nonsense uh, so then you mention that that's where it's a problem if you're mentioning in the context of sanctity of some elevated conversation it's more permitted Rashi has two the no, two interpretations as to how to understand and this combination. Is it specifically that in the when you do it outside of the mikdash and uga or aga, in other words in the vernacular and in the or in the wrong context, while it's outside of the mikdash, that only when you have the two negatives, the two minuses against two X's on you that you're in the or is it either or? In other words, you have, if you're in the mikdash and you do it in the other language or in the wrong context. Or even if you're outside of the Mikdash and you do it in Lashon HaKodesh, it's also a problem. That's the question of Rashi. Again, I would hope that it has no bearing on us other than being careful with our speech and our approach and mention of God. Okay, says the Gemara onward, Shiloh The Mishnah mentioned at the end, there were three kings and four simple, well, non-king individuals who lost their uh, portion in the world to come. And the Mishnah went on to describe them. We're really just going to deal with one over the course of the rest of the Amud over here, and that's the king Yeravam ben Navat. Very briefly, to know about Yeravam ben Navat. Another one of these terrible kings. Who did not good stuff to us? Uh, we'll read about specifically the two iglesia the two golden calves that he erects in his time, the fact that he uh, designates a sect of priests. To lead the people in their worship of Abu Dazara, that the fact that for all intents and purposes, he's not only Chotei, he's Mahatiya he brings the nation of Israel in some, and the rabbis try to give some sense of it, but it's still unfathomable that you are able to uh, pull sway, to change the tide of the nation to the absolute defiance of God. He brings people and a nation. Oh you'd imagine we're doing alright to worshipping Abu He really influences them to that extent. What's that? In his time, the Gadash was still happening with miracles. I ah, you'd imagine so. It's certainly still there. Really Right. We'll, we'll see in the Gemara, it's an amazing, listen, there was a lot of manipulation, the rabbis will envision a lot of manipulation in the way that he pulls this off, there's obviously a lot of, you know, misleading the people, it's in the eyes of the rabbis, which makes a lot of sense, it's all self-centered, and that's, you know, people are people are most manipulative when they're looking for themselves, so he's doing the whole thing in order to sway attention to himself, We'll have to figure it out. Again, it's not fully clear in the text because even if you have the description, uh, so the rabbis fill it in in a way that's a little bit more digestible with regards to us understanding something along those lines. But again, Robbie, we've seen evil people. We've seen people who took uh, pious, you know, unassuming uh, crowds and turned them into, without, in an unassuming way, into you know, this terrible. Oh, what's that? Who oh, appointed these guys? It's generally speaking either the prophet or the people. They were. Fifty over oh, fifty years. Fifty-five years, he was king. He yeah, they can't get him out. They, did, they, they couldn't get him out. Yeah, and I say mean, I had power and control. All right, here we are, Tanur Banan Yirav'am. Again, his name was Yirav'am ben Navat, and the rabbis, as they are wont to do, will make a derasha with regard to his name. They'll understand his name as either being the name from birth and then just reading into it, you know, what did it designate in hindsight, or alternatively, this was never his name. This is the name we gave him after his life because it described who he was. What's that name, Am. One of three interpretations. Either Am. Uh, she explains the word riba is ravat, he squatted, he pushed down, he made the nation lowly as if they were just sitting or squatting on the ground. Instead of standing erect and proudly, he had them in this lowly state of being. That's yiravam, riba. Davara another interpretation, yiravam she'asa miriva ba'am. Yirav'am, even though there's an ayin, we're reading it as riv. Miriva means a fight, a quarrel, amongst the people, a civil unrest. What's that? A description of Rashi suggests that when he leads the people to Avodah Zarah, by definition, in a domain where there's no clarity, in a world where there's all sorts of different powers, we're going to disagree with one another. I say my God is good. You say yours is better. He says his is even better. We're going to get into fights, and that's by bringing Avodah Zarah. He, by definition, brings a quarrelsome attitude to the people. Lastly, the fight was not—it's still Milashon Merivah, but not between the people, but and themselves, but rather between the people and God. They rebel against God with Avodah Zarah. What's with that lashon of navat, his father, ben Shinibet velo ra'a. He's the child of the individual who is hibit, who looked, who peered, but didn't actually see. Before we continue, we're all, even though we might admit not admit to it, we're all aware of such a reality. There are people who believe and convince others that they see, but they're not actually seeing. They portray themselves and they speak about a vision and a perspective, whereas in reality when you press them enough, you realize they're very, very much narrow-sided and seeing only in, within their four cubits of existence. That's going to be the description over here. Here's an individual who seems to be looking carefully his father and we're going to tell a story about him. But in reality, he doesn't actually see. There's a difference between people who actually have sight and those who claim and appear to have sight and we mean this again, not in the physical side, but in terms of perspective, in terms of guidance and understanding down the line. Tana, hu navat hu micha hu sheva ben bichri. The Gemara suggests that these three individuals are really all one. Navat, the father of Yiravan, micha, micha we know from Sefer Shofetim, not a good guy. Micha was an individual who erects a, uh, a an idol. Uh, also, not a very not good time for the people. And sheva ben bichri, not an idol erector or a worshiper, but rather the one whom we talked about actually at the end of the seventh peric of Masechet Sanhedrin is an individual after the rebellion of the son of David, of Shalom, which is a failed rebellion, Sheva ben Bichri tries to rebel on his own. Uh, So it's a person who's defiant of the monarchy who believes that he can be mored bamelech, ultimately speaking, is killed. He's beheaded. Says the Gemara, let's now try to, okay, tradition of sorts links these two individuals together. Now let's understand that statement earlier of Navat. Why would he be known as that? Navat, shenibet velo Again, so that first part, which we haven't defined yet, the reason he was known as Navat is because he was, Peering, he was looking but not seeing. Micha. why would his name be known as Micha, which we're understanding as a nickname? Shenit Machmech Babinyan. We'll talk about what that means in a second. Umashemon, what was his true name? His true name was Sheva ben bichri Shemon. Period. Alright, what does it mean, Nitmachmech Babinyan? Alright, so there's one of two interpretations. I'll go backwards in Rashi. The second interpretation is Rashi is in Rashi is just that he was involved in construction. And the Gemara says earlier, excuse me, in Masech sotan if people involved in construction, I'm sorry, Rabbi, uh, you know, but I know you branch out, uh, they have a certain weakness. You get too involved in construction, you lose a certain uh, your mitmaskin. It's a dangerous and sometimes a to- tasking type of uh, of profession and involvement. Alternatively, there's a long-winded midrash that Rashi cites. It's a well-known Midrash, I don't have a full interpretation to it, but I'll briefly tell it to you. It's that the Midrash says that in Egypt, at the time when Moshe comes and is making the claim that you need to send us out, and Paro says, okay, chalas with the uh, tevim and misbein, we're not giving the, uh, the uh, material for the bricks any longer, what he started to command the people to do is to take their children and to place their children in place of bricks. So you had children as the bricks in the walls. Difficult to understand how and if this is to be taken in any literal sense. Anyway, that's what the Midrash says. Then the Midrash continues as Moshe turns to God. None of this reaching our eyes in the text of the Torah. He turns to God and he says, "Ah, could you be doing this? You know, you sent me in and now not only is, is it worse for us, but you're taking the lives. And God's response is, but all those guys in the wall, all those kids, they're all low lives. There's no future for them. They're not going to turn out any good. But Moshe is defined and he says, oh, I don't believe you. I don't, I don't so he pulls one out. Who was that one who he pulls out? Mikha, you know the midrash? Oh, everybody knows the midrash. Anyways, Micha. What's that? Yeah, I know. I just, you know, I, they didn't teach it to me in school. I mean, I, I learned it later on. It was always very troublesome for me. Anyway, uh, so that's Micha, and that's why it's known as Micha, because to be mitmachmech means that you're pushed in, you're squashed. So he's the individual who's squashed in the wall, who's taken out, and of course God has the last laugh because Micha is a rotten person. Okay, that's who we're envisioning as this Navat, who's also Micha, who's also Sheva ben Bechrit. Hanura Banan, let's understand what this means, that he's nibet, He looked, but he didn't actually see. There are actually three individuals or three people along the timeline of Torah who looked, but didn't actually see. We turned to them and we thought they knew what they were talking about. They seemed to give us a certain perspective, but they didn't have it. Who are they? Navat Par'o. The following three. Navat, uh, we're talking about him. Ahitofil was the Yo'etz. He was the advisor of David in war and he switches sides and goes to Avshalom. We'll understand why in a moment in the eyes of the rabbis. And lastly, Itztagninei Par'o. Those are the sorcerers and the advisors of Par'o. Let's see what they are. Navat, First and foremost, the vision of, and, of the rabbis of Navat, where he looked, but he didn't see. He saw some sort of fire coming out of his arm. And it's probably in a dream of some sort, says uh, Benish Hai. Uh, this is not in see a miracle per se in life, but he saw it in his dream. He had this vision of fire coming out. He says, he says oh my goodness, Navat says, I'm in good luck. I'm going to be the king. That's what the fire is signifying. Velohi but it wasn't so, he begins this, this, this self-centered existence, but it's really his son, who's going to be a whole lot worse than him, or not worse, but just as bad as him, maybe worse than him, who's going to be the king, that's his nibet v'lo All right, the other two individuals who were looking but didn't actually see, Ahitofel ra'a sara'at uh, halo al amato. Ahitofel sees a certain leprosy which is growing on him. Hu sav'ar ihu So Ahitophel assumes and he teams up with Avshalom in a battle because he believes, explains Rashi, that in the victory Avshalom will be then dethroned and he'll rise to greatness. And it's a mistake. He gets involved in a rebellion against the king, which is a failed rebellion. Uh, But what did he see wrong? He saw Sarat. He figured there was going to be some sort of growth in which he's going to have some sort of success. It's not what he was actually supposed to be seeing. He was supposed to be realizing his granddaughter, whose name was Batsheva, is going to have relations with the king. David, who's going to have a child. Shilomo, who's going to be the future king. So Ahitofa, it's interesting that these first two are both describing people who see what they want to see with regards to themselves. That's a, very big, that's a very important message. Aside from all the details in the Gemara, the message is the ability to see is oftentimes obscured by ourselves. Instead of seeing truth in front of us, we see ourselves in front of us. So he's Nibet, he's trying to see, he's looking, but instead of actually having a larger, broader perspective and an understanding of the situation, he sees, they see themselves. Lastly, it's a well-known Midrash, it's Tagnine Paro. It's the sorcerers and advisors of Paro. Amar. b'chama ber my Hema Merivah. Why does the pasuk say at Het Merivah? These were the waters of Memeriva. Merivah, of course, described in Parashat Chukat, is the sin of Moshe and Aharon. Of course, Rashi in his commentary to the Torah says because they hit the rock, the stone, instead of talking to it. Interestingly, the Rashi on our Amud, less known fact in Masechet Sanhedrin, here Adaf, Kofka Aleph Amud suggests that it's because of their words, because they turn to the people and they say Shimona Hamorim, an inappropriate approach to the people. You need to talk with honor, not with anger and putting down the others. Either way, you slice it. Why does the pasuk say, these are the waters of Merivah. Mediv- of, of that's, that's a strange description. In other words, if I tell you a story, I say, listen, let me tell you a long story. I finish the story and I say, and that is, it means that you have some sort of vantage point. You know something about that is. I tell you a story, and that is Ohel Haq congregation. It means you knew Ohel Haq. Now I'm telling you the background, what went into it. We didn't know anything about Merivah. What was it? Hema Merivah explains the Gemara. Hema Sherau Itztagnine Paro V'Tau. These are the same waters that, in prophecy and understanding, those Itztagninim, those sorcerers and, and advisors of par'o, saw, but they made a mistake. What they see, Ra'u Shemoshi Yisrael BeMayim loke. So, the statement in the Gemara is, in the eyes of the rabbis, it goes like this. They saw that in the future, the leader, the Redeemer of Israel, will die with water by means of water. They say, throw all the firstborns or all the sons. Into the into the water, they didn't realize that it's the wrong water. It's the water of Meiriva, which will be his downfall, as as opposed to the water of the Yeor. The understanding of water in this context again needs to be associated closely with God's performance of miracles through water throughout Torah. And the understanding, in turn, is they understand or don't understand that it's going to be his wrongdoing in some sort of relationship with God, as opposed to our ability. To manipulate the circumstance by utilizing the water to take him down. Baruch Amen. Amen.